Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the day now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody, on a never-ending Tuesday, October the 18th, 2022. It's the day for new books, so we do lots of shows on a Tuesday. Um, this week, last week, last month, the last year, perhaps a century, hasn't been a, a great time for democracy in the Middle East. Um, headline today in The Guardian, the London newspaper, talks about a, a Saudi Arabia a Saudi Arabian uh, citizen, also a citizen of the United States, sentenced to 16 years over some tweets uh, uh, that were critical of the new regime there, the autocratic regime. Uh, the Washington Post leads today with news about a whole group of retired U.S. generals who are taking top jobs with the Saudi crown prince, presumably for the money, certainly not for the democracy. Um, bad news, of course, from Iran. Uh, apparently, according to the Wall Street Journal, no great fan of the Iranian regime. Um, the, the Iranians are shifting their tactics to using covert police and technology to crack down on protests. Meanwhile, I think there's going to be a huge cultural storm over the upcoming World Cup in Qatar. There's news in The Guardian earlier this week that uh, the Qataris are already imposing chilling restrictions on media for this supposed celebration of international friendship. There's always been a bit of a problem on, with democracy in the Middle East, but particularly it's acute now in the post-Iraq-Syria world where most of us seems to have not only given up hope of democracy in America, but stopped thinking about it, which is appropriate for a new book, The Problem of Democracy, by one of America's foremost scholars of the region, Shadi Hamid, who is at the Brookings Institute, America, the Middle East, and the rise and fall of an idea. Shadi is joining us from Washington, D.C. Shadi, the rise and fall of an idea. That was a sharp rise and a very sharp fall, wasn't it? Yeah, it was sharp indeed, yes. Um, and I was actually in Tahrir Square on the day that the dictator Mubarak fell in Egypt. And many of your listeners might remember just the euphoria, the excitement, the sense that finally the the arab world was going to experience a bit of freedom and democracy and that that day was february 11th uh, 2011 in cairo and it was a beautiful moment and then obviously we're now uh, 11 years later but even by the by the end of 2013 the arab spring was pretty much done for and it, and by then it had turned into an arab winter or whatever seasonal affliction we want we want to use so um that that was um a sad development and i think for me it was quite personal um i did have hope and i was living in the region at the time and i was able to observe uh, many of these developments firsthand and um, we can talk about what exactly happened but just one thing to note for those who might not be aware in egypt 
there was a military coup that overturned the democratically elected government in July 2013. And then there was a massacre a month later. So that, in a sense, captures the rise and fall, at least in one sense. And there was a democratic experiment in Egypt and a critical mass of Egyptians who supported the military coup decided that they didn't want to proceed with that experiment. Shadi, you have a great deal of visibility on social media. You have over 100 and almost 150,000 followers. You're a fellow of the Brookings Institute. You write extensively for The Atlantic. Tell me a little bit about your background. Are you from the region originally? So I'm born and raised in Pennsylvania, but originally Egyptian. So my parents uh, immigrated from Egypt, my dad in the 1970s, my mom in 1980. And uh, at various points in my life, I lived in Egypt, Jordan, and Qatar. So those are three authoritarian regimes of different sorts. And while, uh, while the Arab Spring was happening, I was based in Qatar, but then I was spending quite a bit of time in Egypt, going back and forth, conducting interviews with activists and opposition and politicians, and just trying to get a sense of what was going on uh, on the ground. So, um, yep, that's a, it's a bit about me. And my we can talk about um, what my Egyptian relatives thought about the Arab Spring. Mm, well, let, let's talk more broadly, Shadi. As a, you don't need me to tell you this, that there's been over the last century an ongoing debate about uh, Islamic exceptionalism, Middle Eastern exceptionalism. You have a book, uh, your, one of your previous books, Ex Islamic Exceptionalism, how the struggle over Islam is reshaping the world. Is there anything exceptional in your view about Islam or the Middle East when it comes to democracy? An ongoing debate, some people argue, that for various historical reasons, uh, the world, the, the Middle East is not suited to democracy. Others say that that's absolute nonsense. What's your take on this argument? Yeah, well, you're right. I did write a book with precisely that title, Islamic Exceptionalism. So I do think there is something, quote unquote, exceptional about Islam. But I wouldn't say that it has to do with Islam being incompatible with democracy. My argument is more that Islam is intention with liberalism. And this is where I try to make a careful distinction between small d democracy and small l liberalism. And just a very brief overview on that. Um, with when we talk about democracy, we're talking more about having regular elections and reflecting the will of the majority through those regular elections. Um, being responsive to the electorate, even if the electorate has bad ideas, rotation of power. So um, one party wins one cycle, and then there's a chance for a different party to win in subsequent elections. So you have um, this kind of natural alternation, where when we talk about liberalism, we're talking here about the classical liberal tradition, not what Americans might associate with, oh, the libs, the left people on the left, that sort of thing. Classical liberal tradition uh, has a stronger emphasis on uh, personal autonomy, individual rights and freedoms, the sorts of things that we associate generally 
with the U.S. Constitution and right. the Bill of Rights. And that's more about constraining the will of the majority and making sure that the individual has certain rights uh, protected. That can also include gender equality, rights of minorities, um, the right to criticize religions, that sort of thing. Do you think, Shadi, that to have a viable democracy, you need liberalism in a basic sense as, again, a, a broader debate about this um, in Europe? Um, Orban in Hungary boasts about being an illiberal Democrat. Others argue you can't be a liberal Demo illiberal Democrat. There's a contradiction in terms. Do you think one has to be a liberal? One has to at least embrace the basics of liberal values to establish a democracy? Not necessarily. And um, that's one of perhaps the more controversial arguments I make in the new book, where I try to say that there's something to be said for decoupling these ideas. And I think oftentimes in Western public debate, we use these terms interchangeably. So when people say democracy, they often mean liberal democracy as a package. And I think that um, that makes things more challenging because there, may, there aren't necessarily enough liberals in the Middle East to have liberalism. And these are religiously conservative societies. So if we kind of present this as a package deal, we may not get as much support as we might like. Now, I, you do need some basic liberal protections for democracy to be um, fair and for people to have a chance to win in elections. So, for example, if you prevent people from forming political parties or from protesting in the main square then you're not going to have real political competition because citizens won't be able to communicate their preferences to voters. So you need some, some aspects of what I call political liberalism. And I distinguish that from cultural and religious liberalism, which I don't think you need. In other so words... Could you give me some examples of a, a political liberal? Is Singapore an example of a, a one-party political liberalism that perhaps countries in the Middle East might try to emulate? Well, there are restrictions in Singapore that make it uh, quite difficult for other parties to win. So as you suggest, it is basically one party rule. So what I'm calling for here is the opposition needs to have a legitimate shot at winning. What I don't think you need to have in the Middle East for democracy to prosper is the privatization of religion or a kind of cultural liberalism where you say that gender equality is necessary or that um, on, on the rights of minorities as well. And that can be obviously a contentious thing in the Middle East when it comes to the rights of religious or ethnic minorities. And that's where I do think there is some tension with Islam as it's been traditionally understood. And my what I advocate for is to say, look, um, Egyptians, Jordanians, Tunisians, they should hold free and fair elections as long as the opposition has a right to contest and to communicate its preferences. But then if a religiously inspired party comes to power, like, say, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, even if we as Westerners don't feel comfortable with that and that offends our liberal sensibilities, that's not for us to say because we're not the ones voting in these countries, but we can actually also extend that increasingly to Western democracies. 
is Donald Trump committed to the liberal tradition? I would say he's not. There is a real chance he might win in 2024. In Italy, in the recent elections just a couple of weeks ago, um, a far right party did very well, the Brothers of Italy. And for the first time since Mussolini, we're likely to have a far right yeah. prime minister in Italy, and she will have come to power through democratic elections, not in spite of them. So I think that this, this is why it's important for us to decouple these concepts, because if we say that we're only comfortable with democracy, if it leads to liberal outcomes or liberal parties winning, then what do we do about Italy or Poland or even the U.S.? So I think this is increasingly a universal set of tensions. And one thing I talk about in the book is that I used to think this was a Middle Eastern problem specifically. It was something foreign that we as Westerners didn't really have to contend with. But it, as it turns out, the Middle East or the Arab Spring specifically offered a kind of preview of what was to come in Western democracies where we would see this divergence between democracy and liberalism as concepts that we could no longer take for granted that they would go together as they may as they did and they used to go together for quite some time or right. so. So Shadi, you, you mentioned you were in Tahrir Square. You mentioned that your background is Egyptian. Is this what happened in Egypt? That the Muslim Brotherhood was elected and then America backed off because they didn't see the Muslim Brotherhood as being democratic. And that was, to use your language, the problem at least of Egyptian democracy. Could could the Muslim Brotherhood, had they survived in power, given that they won the election legitimately, could they have begun to build the foundations of an Egyptian democracy? Yes, yeah, so I think this is a big part of what happened in Egypt. And you're right. When I say the problem of democracy, the problem, as I define it, is um, what happens when democracy produces bad outcomes. And I tend to put bad in scare quotes because... Um, people can't agree on what constitutes a good outcome or a bad outcome. And that's part of what makes this such a dilemma. Because obviously, in the case of Egypt, if the Muslim Brotherhood wins in consecutive elections, presumably Brotherhood members think that's a good outcome. But we as Americans look at that and we are uncomfortable because we don't love the idea of religion playing such a prominent role in public life, especially a religion we don't understand all that well as Westerners, which is Islam, which does have a public account of law in a way that Christianity doesn't, you know, Sharia. And this is all I feel like um, Americans struggle with the idea of Sharia because Christianity doesn't have something equivalent to Sharia. So in the beginning of the Arab Spring, I would say that Obama unlike perhaps some of his predecessors, was at least somewhat open to the idea that religious parties might play a role. But then when it actually became a practical thing, so it's one thing to theorize, it's one thing to kind of be intellectually comfortable with an idea. But when it actually started happening, Obama, as I, as I relay in the book, became increasingly uncomfortable with the trajectory of the Arab Spring. And he started complaining about this trajectory, saying that uh, Arabs were becoming tribal. He was he was wondering why Arab, uh, why Muslims couldn't have 
a reformation where Islam could modernize. And there's a number of quotes to this effect. Yeah, we've, had, basically... we've had authors on the show, a Turkish author in particular, who, who has a book out about why Islam didn't experience its own reformation. So this is a, a broader intellectual question too. Yeah, so Are exactly. you suggesting yeah. then that the problem of democracy in Egypt and America, the Middle East, and the rise and fall of an idea that the fall can be at least in part blamed on America and Obama's failure to understand the Muslim Brotherhood and the reality of politics in Egypt and North Africa and the Middle East? Yeah, so I, t I tend to think that the U.S. has more leverage than it's willing to admit. I think sometimes you hear Americans saying, oh, well, what can we do about the Middle East? They're hopeless over there. They're always fighting about their sectarian ideas and that sort of thing. But if you look at specific countries, the U.S. does have considerable leverage. And I think we under we as Americans underestimate that. So, for example, in the case of Egypt, um, you know, we are the primary patrons when it comes to the Egyptian military, one point three billion dollars a year. And people will say, well, OK, that that's important. And we're the number one uh, you know, providers in that regard. But one point three billion is not the biggest amount in, you know, in today's in today's conception of money. But there's a number of other things that we have to offer to countries like Egypt. Their military would not be able to function if it wasn't for our spare parts, our maintenance, our training, logistical support. If we as Americans decided, maybe not overnight, but in the matter of months to stop providing those that spare parts and maintenance, parts of the Egyptian military would not be able to run. So at, at that very basic level, there are things that we can do if we really wanted to do them, if we wanted to send a pretty stark message to uh, our Egyptian counterparts. We have not been willing to use that maximal leverage up until now. In fact, we've never actually entertained that and gone to that level of intensity and seriousness when it comes to the military to military relationship you could say something similar about saudi arabia we don't give them right military and, and, and you wrote a really interesting piece very convincing piece actually in july this year in the atlantic you know, where you're a regular contributor uh the title the uh, middle eastern autocrats embarrassed biden at will will of course the photo of MBS, the ubiquitous Middle Eastern autocrat from Saudi Arabia. Has Biden failed to have, um, have these Middle Eastern autocrats, and particularly MBS, and his use of money to basically bribe anyone he wants? Um, has that corrupted the American view of, of, of the Middle East, and particularly the Biden administration? It's funny that you're critical of both Obama and Biden. Uh, in the context of the Middle East. Well, yes, and I think Biden is in some sense a continuation of some of the mistakes that Obama made. And um, and we see how it didn't really work out well for Biden. So he he goes on this trip to Saudi Arabia. He makes nice with Mohammed uh, bin Salman and they shake hands. And the idea behind that was that if if Biden kind of met MBS halfway, that MBS would reciprocate by increasing oil supply and therefore lowering the prices. Um, it actually turned out to be the opposite. And we just saw recently, uh, two weeks ago, that OPEC plus 
actually is cutting supply. And I think and some in the Biden administration and, they, and they've been quoted saying saying this, that they perceive this as a potentially hostile act and even potentially a sign that MBS is trying to put his thumb on the scale um, of the midterms and to undermine Biden's claim that gas prices have been improving and, and that sort of thing. And what is the lesson here? The lesson here is that when you try to make nice with these autocrats, even if they're supposedly our allies, they actually see that as a sign of weakness. They say, oh, well, we can get away with anything if Biden is actually coming to us and trying to make nice and basically prostrating himself, you know, to these dictators then that actually emboldens these autocrats to be more aggressive, to, to disregard U.S. concerns even more. So I'm much more of the view that these autocrats need some tough love. They need to understand their place in the world. They need us more than we need them. We are America, and I don't mean to get into some well, like... I'm not, actually convinced. I, I, I'm not convinced of that. Well, what's the view okay. from Egypt and North Africa... Uh, uh, um... Uh, Shadi, of the kind of the enlightened despotism coming out of the Gulf from Qatar or from Saudi or from the United Arab Emirates. Are there people there, even modernizers, who believe that this might be the way forward? I mean, I understand your presentation of the Egyptian situation, and it makes a lot of sense. You leave out, though, the reality of, 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 Egypt, of Egyptian economics and the, the broader crisis of sort of Egypt's role in the world, which you can't blame on democracy, but is complicates the situation a little bit. So, so how, yeah. Uh, so, 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 um, so what is the view of the legitimacy, the credibility of, of the model being pioneered or maybe not pioneered in, in, in the Gulf really borrowed, I guess, from China in some ways of, enlightened despotism 21st century style well i'm glad you brought that up because uh, you know as critical as i am of u.s foreign policy egyptians have agency too so i think these two factors have to be considered um and both play a role in different ways and when it for example when it comes to my relatives in egypt um they're part of the secular elite they said maybe in the beginning of the Arab Spring, oh, shady democracy in theory, I guess we're okay with that. But when they actually saw the results, they said, who do you think you are coming in here and preaching about this democracy? We're the ones who have to live with the consequences of elections, not you. You can go back to the U.S. You know, whenever you want. And this is why there are many Egyptians and many Arabs in the millions who actually say something which I think we would consider to be vaguely Islamophobic, which is that Arabs and Muslims are not ready for democracy. Why? Because when they get a chance to vote, they vote for these backwards, retrograde religious parties like the Muslim Brotherhood. So my relatives supported the military coup that ended the democratic experiment in Egypt. And so Egyptians have obviously some responsibility here too. Many of them did not want to proceed because, and because they saw that democracy was threatening to some of or much of what they held dear. And this is the danger of when politics becomes so existential that 
it's not about um, economic debates, things that you can compromise on because they're about material concerns. They're about the foundations of the state. Um, they're about the role of religion in public life. They're about what it means to be Egyptian at this very fundamental level. And you can split the middle maybe on tax rates because you actually have numbers there, but it's harder to split the middle when it comes to the identity of the state. And that's partly what happened in Egypt, that you had this very stark polarization over the question of religion and the relationship between Islam and the state. So that that is why there is support for this idea of benevolent dictatorship. But I would problematize that because I don't believe that benevolent dictatorship is possible. There have been a couple examples, but those examples are so exceptional over the course of decades, over the last century, that I think that it is a false promise. It's actually something closer to speculative fiction. People bring up Singapore as an example, but Singapore is a city state. People bring up the UAE, but Dubai is a city state, basically Abu Dhabi and so forth. They barely have any citizens of their own. Um, the citizens are really in the hundreds of thousands, the same thing with Qatar. So you have these so-called models which are not replicable. And China is no longer a model in my view because we've seen the failure of the Chinese model. China is currently, as we speak, destroying its own economy through this absurd zero COVID policy. Um, and there's any number of other examples. Mm -hmm. Russia, I, I, I take yeah. your point. Let's, let's add more complexity here. You wrote yeah, sure. a piece on Iran uh, in the Atlantic earlier this year, actually earlier this month. The reason Iran turned out to be so repressive if Egypt isn't the inspiration, if it's not the, the terrorist square, might the inspiration for democracy eventually come from Iran? After all, you know, we had um, we had Kim Khatas on the show. I'm sure you're very familiar yeah. with her work, uh, Black Wave on the Iranian Revolution. That was the promise originally. And, of course, the, the mortal enemy of autocracy in the Gulf is Iran. So... Is there a sectarian element here to the problem of democracy, given the tensions and historic rivalries between Shia and Sunni Islam, even if somebody like Khatas would argue that those were invented? So, so what, 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 what added complexity does the Iranian card, the Iranian model or potential model bring? Yeah, so I, th I think that you know, Saudi Arabia on one end, um, and then you have Iran on the other, they're always talking about the other as an existential enemy. And they're able to use this external threat to justify a very harsh approach to security that everything has to be managed and controlled, because the neighborhood is dangerous. You always hear this rhetoric from Iranian officials and also Saudi officials. Um, and for that matter, Israeli officials, Israel right. is... I was uh, thinking of Israel, although they manage their own quote-unquote democracy, which is another story as well. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I think that, you know, this is when you have, a, you know, a dangerous neighborhood, it's always easy to postpone democracy indefinitely because you say to your people, look, we're under attack. Look, we're under sanctions. Look, everyone's out to get us. So just, you know, be quiet about your democratic wishes for the time being. 
Now, you know, these autocrats can get away with that for some period of time. But what we're seeing in Iran now is that Iranians, a growing number of them are saying enough is enough. We're not buying these excuses. We've been in this virtual state of emergency for more than 40 years. I mean, 1979 is a long time to be in a perpetual state of existential threat where you feel everyone's out to get you, the Americans, the Saudis, and God knows who else. And at some point, people are going to ask for more. And this is where I think there is a natural desire, not necessarily for liberalism, but for some level of freedom to decide one's own fate. And that's what democracy ultimately offers. It gives you the right to protest. Well, what about the it, Iranian model? And excuse perhaps this rather naive question, but isn't there an element of democracy in in Iran today? I mean, there are elections um, and the clerics run a repressive regime. How different is the democracy in uh, the Iran of the Ayatollahs from the democracy you talk about in the Egypt of the Muslim Brotherhood? And and how different is the outcome? Yeah. Well, so I do not consider Iran to be a democracy in any way for the simple reason that it doesn't meet the basic test of opposition parties being able to contest elections. Um, and so, you know, the, the Guardian Council basically vets candidates and parties that are and decides who's able to participate um so you know and, and we're seeing now that people don't even have the right to protest they're faced with brutality they can't criticize the supreme leader without facing persecution from the state so there maybe are some democratic elements as you mentioned that there are elections but the elections are so constrained because people can't choose whoever they want they're given choices and then they can vote on those couple options. And even then there's oftentimes fraud, as we saw in 2009, which led to the green movement. So in that sense, even at that very, very um, minimal level, there aren't the elections aren't really representative or responsive to the electorate. So um, and when it comes to the Brotherhood as a point of comparison, now we don't know exactly what the Brotherhood would have done in Egypt if they had stayed in power. And this is always why people are so afraid of religious parties, because even if they aren't imposing theocracy now, they say, well, oh, and this is what I often heard from my relatives. They would say, Shadi, yes, you're right. The Brotherhood hasn't imposed Sharia law yet. But what if they do that at some unspecified point in the future? And it becomes very hard to have a reasonable conversation about that because it's hard for me as an analyst to talk about something that hasn't happened yet, but that might theoretically happen 10 or 15 years from now. And this, this gets to, I think, a very important point that I make in the book, and that also applies to Western democracies. Democracy is in part about uncertainty. There are no full guarantees. So when people say, well, you know, if Trump wins in 2024, isn't there a risk that he'll take America in an authoritarian direction and America will no longer be a democracy? And I can't offer guarantees on that. Um, at some level, we have to play out those scenarios because what is what's the alternative? 
we can't ban Trump from running. We can't we can't disband the Republican Party. And I would say something similar. We shouldn't disband Islamist parties because we're worried about what they might do when right, they come right, to let's power. Let's return to, to your book and to this whole yeah. question of democracy in the Middle East. So far in this conversation, America has avoided most serious criticism. You talk a little bit about Obama and, and Biden's cozying up to MBS, but mostly they're, they're out, of the, out of the narrative. But we've done so many shows on catastrophic American policy in the Middle East. We did many on Iraq, Robert Draper, for example, one of America's great critics yes. on the Iraq war. We also did one with uh, Wall Street Journal journalist Joby Warwick on Syria and the catastrophe in Syria. How much responsibility does America have for the, well, particularly the catastrophe in Iraq, uh, but also for Syria, which, of course, Syria was sparked out of the Arab Spring, out of the demonstrations in Tahrir Square, which resulted in the civil war in Syria? Yeah, so I think that on Syria, I was um, an outspoken critic, as you might gather, of Obama when it came to Syria policy. But that's but that's a little bit different than what we did or didn't do in Egypt. In that case, I think military intervention against the Assad regime should have been on the table. And it actually was. And Obama, you know, as as listeners might recall, um, back down at the very last moment. Right. We had and, Clarissa Ward, the CNN correspondent. Yeah. On the show two or three years ago, who was, who was brutally critical of, of the Obama regime on Syria. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's but I, I, I I'm always careful not to conflate democracy promotion with military intervention. And I think in that sense, Syria is a different category than what I'm talking about with Egypt and Saudi Arabia and the UAE, because in that case, no one, and certainly I'm not calling for somehow military in, militarily intervening against the Sisi regime in Egypt or MBS in Saudi Arabia. There, what we need to do is to use our leverage um, by making aid or a weapon. Okay, no, I think that, but what about Iraq, uh, Shadi, and uh, essentially a, a, a colonial attempt to impose democracy from the outside? How much of a catastrophe? Is that has that been on the region in terms of your problem of democracy? Yeah, it tainted the idea of democracy promotion. And I should also just I, I would want to note that the invasion of Iraq was not primarily about promoting democracy in Iraq. Um, it was about weapons of mass destruction. Now, there was a secondary justification, especially when the Bush administration didn't find WMDs, then you started to hear much more about mm. this transformative pro-democracy project. But I think we should be very careful not to take the Bush administration at its at its word. But the neoliberals did believe in their domino theory of democracy in the Middle East, didn't they? And they were the ones driving the Bush agenda. Yes. Yeah, so some of the prominent neocons um, were were very much of that view. And I have to say, on some aspects of the Bush doctrine, I was sympathetic. And, you know, sometimes I've joked elsewhere that my ideal U.S. foreign policy would be uh, the George W. Bush freedom agenda minus the Iraq war. And I was um, very critical of the Iraq war. I was part of the anti-war movement. I was young back then. 
Um, and I thought it was, you know, absurd that we were actually doing that. But as the freedom agenda, the so-called freedom agenda proceeded, I saw some positive aspects with how the Bush administration was saying things that hadn't been said before, which was that for 60 years, um, the U.S. has been supporting authoritarian regimes and it hasn't led to good outcomes. It hasn't given the U.S. or the region any real stability and it hasn't improved the lives of the people in the region. So I do actually give the Bush administration some credit for taking this rhetoric seriously and beginning to put pressure on some of these autocratic regimes. But what happened there is Islamist parties, we go back to the story, Islamist parties started doing well in elections in 2004, 2005, 2006, Hamas in the Palestinian territories, the Muslim Brotherhood in the fall 2005 elections, Hezbollah um, in, in the Lebanese election, so on and so forth. So it brings us back to this perpetual dilemma that we as Americans want democracy in theory, but we're not comfortable with the results of democracy in practice. And that's ultimately where the Bush administration started to sour on the democratic idea um, many years ago. Uh, right. because you, they you had, mentioned yeah. that. I, I, I think it's a compelling argument, Shad. You mentioned Lebanon. Is the sectarian Le Lebanese democracy, could that be a model too? Well, um, unfortunately not, because it's not doing too well for a number of other reasons. Well, it's doing and, better than some of the other countries in the region. I mean, it's the, yeah. it, 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 would it be fair to say that the only place um, in the Middle East where there is uh, a, a functioning democracy remains Lebanon outside Israel? Well, it depends how you define functioning, right? <laughs> I mean, that's... So I don't know, Would pe are people comfortable calling Lebanon functioning? But you're right that they have averted a return to civil war um, since the Taif agreements in the early 1990s. So in that sense, is Lebanon doing better than, say, Syria? Yes. Well, everywhere in the world is doing better than Syria. So <laughs> right. Uh, we got to move on. There, there's so much to talk about. You, you wrote a fascinating piece in uh, First Things, of all things, a Catholic magazine, how modernity swallowed Islamism. But I wonder whether modernity could still reappear in, in the Middle East. I did a show last month with the uh, UC Irvine historian Mark Levine on the role of underground music in the Muslim world. He has a new book out, We Play Till We Die, Journey, Journeys Across a Decade of Revolutionary Music in the, Middle, in the Muslim World. And Levine seems to have found... A, youth, a radical youth culture, I'm not sure how large it is, but he suggested to me in our conversation that it offers perhaps the beginnings of a, a, a new way of thinking about society and democracy. Do you see much evidence of cultural ferment that could produce democracy outside democracy being imposed from above? Look, um, well, I'm I'm a little I have a dark view of human nature, so I I'm never particularly enthusiastic about the youth. Um, yes, no, there's old. You've given up on the young people. You're not so well, old yourself. Well, yeah, How I'm relative. How old are you? <laughs> so I'm 39. So yeah, I guess well, I don't know if that's pretty young to me. 
Okay, yeah. So I am relatively young, but knowing people of my own generation and previous generations, um, look, there are some positive, I think, currents. And Mark Levine does talk about um, bands and this kind of cultural ferment. Yeah, so you know, you know his for- work. Yeah, to, to, to some extent, and I think that's all great. And I, you know, I know I, I, I saw some of these these bands that seem very liberal and English speaking, and are trying to mix things up. But if we're talking about mass movements, I think we have to be careful about not seeing that this isn't necessarily the future. There is a kind of cultural and art scene in many of these countries, in Amman, in Cairo, in the capitals that does seem forward leaning and progressive, but they tend to be more culturally progressive than politically progressive. They're not necessarily big democracy people. And that's fine. That's not their focus. They're more focused on. Uh, so Shadi, uh, I think we have to finish now. It's a fascinating okay. conversation. Um, are you saying then that the best the Middle East can get is the Muslim Brotherhood when it comes to democracy? <laughs> I mean, that seems to be what you're saying. You, you, as no. you acknowledge, you have a rather pessimistic view of human nature, perhaps globally, not just in terms of the Middle East. Yeah. Are you a Democrat yourself? <laughs> I, I, no, it's a good question. Yeah, I, I, I would consider myself a pretty hardcore small D Democrat. Um, you know, I think that the Brotherhood is not the best the Middle East can get. Tunisia, I think, until there was a authoritarian power grab that ended that experiment that was a that was a democratization um scenario where islamists were not dominating um they were part of a coalition government but you know look it's up to arabs to vote the way they want it's not for me to say so if they vote for the brotherhood so be it if they vote for communists or socialists or leftists or liberals um, I don't know what it's going to look like going forward. I mean, democracy is an iterative process. One election, the Brotherhood might win. If they if they don't do well, then other parties might have a better chance of winning thereafter. But the only way to know is by actually letting the d- democratic process play out. Fascinating stuff. And, and you're very honest in your observations about the problem of democracy in the Middle East, America, the Middle East, and the rise and fall of an idea. Very, very interesting book. Thank you so much, Shadi. What else are you reading these days? What other books keep you up at night? I hope you're not just reading about democracy in the Middle East. <laughs> well, yes, I was I was warned that you you may ask. So I did actually think about that. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give something that viewers and listeners might really appreciate, which um, I consider it to be the best, the single best novel I've ever read, and I finished it actually some time ago last year, but it's still sort of lingering in my memory. It's called Light Years by James Salter. Um, I think it was published uh, in the early '70s, and James Salter, you know, he's sort of um, a writer's writer. He He's not really famous per se with ordinary readers. But if people are looking for a relentlessly bleak novel that is beautifully written, the prose style is something else. Um, and relentlessly bleak is obviously a theme here, as you can probably tell, Andrew. But that is that's a book that I still can't stop thinking about in terms of um Something that uh, maybe nonfiction. I read this um, 
I'm reading, uh, <laughs> it's actually called Chatter, which I'm enjoying, which is about, it, it's sort of a self-help book, which I'm usually suspicious about. But in this case, I think it's, um, it's just like a helpful thing if people want to um, get a better sense of how the human mind actually operates. Um, it's not the best thing I've read, but it's actually something that I'm reading now that is maybe a little bit more practical. It's worth taking a look at.